Chris, good afternoon. Hey, man. Happy GDPR day. You're, uh, you know, I was going to do something before you said that, ha. and now you cut me off, ha. and now I'm just angry. I was already angry at GDPR, and now I'm already angry. Oh. So much more angry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, so uh, come today, the GDPR law has come into uh, effect. Basically, it's enfor enforceable starting May 25th, 2018. So uh, all of those emails you've been getting, if you haven't said yes yet, they won't be coming in anymore, and every website will become a UX nightmare because they will ask you for permission for anything and everything from now on. Of course, it is in the end a good thing. Your privacy or at least your personal data will be handled with care or not handled at all. So it should in the end get us towards a safer place, but let's figure out how to design for it in the future. I'm not sure if I agree that it's a good thing, but if you're interested, our last two podcasts have been on that. So I don't want to don't want to go into it more now. No, it was just time relevant. <laughs> yes, I know. Yeah, stupid GDPR. <laughs> but today we're going to talk about the need for control. Yeah. So do you want to, uh, you know, you've been kicking us off the last few weeks. So why don't you, uh, why don't you take us away again? So. Um, and on, I, plan to be, I plan to be very angry during this podcast, by the way. <laughs> well, I, I, I wanted to start off with uh, the need for control and that topic. And uh, of course, if you've read the news in the last one and a half weeks, there has been an active or not, not full on censorship, but a kind of a semi-censorship where Spotify decided that it will no longer actively support the career of R. Kelly for his uh, hate speech that he's been putting out. They don't want it associated with their brand anymore, so they decided to remove all of R. Kelly's songs off of Spotify's own curated playlists. Of course, they didn't remove him off the surface in total, so it's still available if you search for it or if you go to a playlist made by somebody else. Since last week, the plays of R. Kelly have not gone down. They've actually gone non-significantly up. It's like 200 or 300 plays more in the week after this happened than, uh, versus the week before. But of course, I expect this to taper down slightly, but it's more of a gesture of Spotify saying we don't support this anymore versus a, an actual act of censorship. So there are a lot of things to unpack here, right? There is the what we've talked about in the last several podcasts, the ethical stance that we see companies starting to take. And this is not just about data, but this is about what the companies stand for and what they promote. Then I think the the thing that may be more interesting is that companies, you know, Spotify being the example you just said, but we see this with Facebook and we've talked about this actually on our other podcast, Dark Side of Design. We have been seemingly asking companies to police the information that we see. And this to me, and I don't know if this is from my American culture, and this is where I'm curious if your point of view on this, mm -hmm. but this to me seems like a dangerous road to go down because we're asking corporations to decide what is you know pleasant for us based on how many people are complaining or presenting outrage or offense over a situation. And, you know, it's, it's great that Spotify does this from an ethical point of view, and I think that is one consideration. But where does this go if people start complaining about somebody else's music? Are they going to, you know, pull that? Is this going to be a situation where complaints stop content from being publicized? And I don't know, you know, I don't know if this is good or bad. I just 
feel like it is a slippery slope towards telling private corporations to police content for us instead of us policing it by ourselves. I, I think you're right because you're, you start to uh, rely on somebody else's ethics. And in, in my opinion, this is funny, the whole idea of ethics is that it's personal and should be a discussion between multiple parties. It should not be downloaded from one side. We, we have already talked about this before where Ethics is not black and white. It's not a list. It can be culturally dependent. It can be age group dependent. But ethics is about the fact that you cannot decide for somebody else what they should find good or bad. Now, of course, we censorship exists and it is real. There's books that are outlawed. There's um, other things that, that will be blocked. And you have censorship for ideologies ideologies and you have censorship for, for instance, copyrighted material. That's in a slightly different way. But these things are scary. And that's why I find it interesting that in the example of Spotify, they decided not to censor it, but they decided to kind of take their label off it. They said, well, we do not support this anymore. But since they are a channel of availability and the content itself is not illegal, therefore it doesn't qualify for censorship. And we've, we've seen other tools that companies have been exercising that are not a way of censorship, but that are ways of discouraging people to either upload it or discouraging people to, to play it back. We, we've seen this also happening recently in YouTube starting to uh, what they now call demonetize videos, where certain videos that used to make uh, revenue through uh, showing ads, YouTube, when it sees a certain video that is not within their ethical standards, they remove the ability for this video to make money by running ads, and there will be no ads that pay these people anymore. And this is, this is another way of applying censorship without censoring, but it's basically making it not valuable anymore for that person to make new content. And therefore, they're kind of sort of put in the corner. Well, the, uh, one of the famous examples of what you're speaking about here is um, a Swedish YouTuber who's quite famous by the name of uh, PewDiePie, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, mm -hmm. that there was a video that he did that had, uh, I, I'll say he made a mistake and it was a accidental sort of anti-Semitic um, content in it. And there was lots of, I, I believe it was, I believe it was anti-Semitic. God, it was like nine months ago. Yep. And there was a lot of outrage over this. And so YouTube um, pulled some of their exclusive deals with him. Again, you know, operating under their ethics. And I don't know how I feel about this because again, it's, it's sort of this mass critique all of a sudden, you know, a guy made a mistake, but it just seems like, why don't we just not watch it? and not give him money. And then, the, you know, the problem does sort it out. Vote with your with your wallets in this case. And maybe this is, you know, again, my cultural and my, my capitalistic uh, tendencies talking. But I feel like if we continually ask companies like this to change our content, there is going to be some sort of lowest common you know, denominator here that we're going to hit. And one of the things I wrote down while you were talking is, from an ethical point of view, as you said, these things are subjective. But I, I think one of the interesting things to think about is the ethics of a, let's say, a situation or an application are determined by the country of origin in a way, not always. Mm -hmm. And the reason I, I sort of say this is, 
Now, very recently, WWE, so the the wrestling company, made a deal with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia to bring um, their entertainment over there, and they did a very large event uh, in, in one of the stadiums there. And they got criticized because I believe it's during one of the sort of um, promo videos, they didn't have any women's wrestling. And during one of the promo videos, I believe there was a shot of a woman in sort of training gear, right? So sports bra type of situation, like, you know, they show people training and whatnot. And um, the, I believe it was the government or the TV channel offered an active apology for this because people were outraged. And now you can imagine if a company like Facebook that is global was started in Saudi Arabia, I can believe that the content guidelines would be incredibly different than they are when it started in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that's an interesting just sort of thought to think about. And, and we will tie this for designers listening. We are going to tie this back to design at the end. We are going on a very long setup here, but it is something to consider around when you're working with a company or when you're starting with a company. And, you know, what do they stand for really sort of depends on where that company started and what's the culture that they started with. Yeah, and in a way, the countries that some of these companies and or platforms are running from, that's determining the ethics that's being uh, broadcast, but it's all over the world because the internet makes content accessible for anyone and everyone. So in that respect, there have been things like this happening in the past. We know about the, the great Chinese firewall that actually makes lots of things inaccessible in China. It's not new. It's just that now we're starting to see it in, uh, on, on our side of that firewall, and we're starting to see it happen in a, in a piecemeal fashion. So it's really becoming a more personal way of pinpointing what kind of uh, content is good or not. And I think that's where the, where the difference this time is at, is that it's, it's decided on a piece per piece basis and, and seemingly on, on ethics that we, that we have no control of. Okay, so the, the interesting thing here to think about for designers, I promised that you know, we would start to tie this back to design. When we've looked at, let's say, Facebook, because that's the most prominent example over the last six months, one year, uh, maybe one and a half or two years, or we look at Twitter, one of the things that they've started, and this happened started years ago, they've been critiqued for is not having the proper tools in place to moderate content. Right, so, so we've talked about how companies are moderating content, how companies are controlling that content. But one of the things that, it, that seems that happens is when people build these systems, they don't actively think of the moderator side of how they will control the things. You know, it's purely a get the application up and running, get it moving, get users on board. And that's all they seem to think about. But they don't actively think about the the negative situations. And Twitter has a a horrible troll issue that's a sort of a dumpster fire issue that they still seem to be wrestling with, right? Like whatever it's been, 10 years or something like that. Yeah. And, you know, Facebook, to their credit, has been putting a lot of tools in place. I actually think what they've been doing has, has been, they've been trying. I You can still critique them all you want, but let me tell you something. When you serve 2 billion people, guess what? You're always going to have a few million people that hate you. And a few million people can still make a lot of noise. So when everyone critiques Facebook, you know, most people don't work on products that serve half a billion or even... 50 million people. So when you're serving 2 billion people, it is going to be a little bit difficult. And there's always going to be a few million people who are making a lot of noise. So we should take that into consideration. I have seen, 
I have seen them do a lot on the content tools, but for designers, when you work on a product, especially a product that deals in network effects, that deals in content, that deals in trust, that deals in conversations, I think it's quite important that people think about how you police the content. Even if I don't necessarily agree with it, uh, from a, you know, maybe content point of view, how do you police conversations? Because I really dislike that Twitter has not handled the troll problem better. Um, you know, so it just seems to me like people think about one side of the consumer experience and not the other side. And it's not just this, by the way. I see this with other applications where designers think about the consumer side and then they don't think about the user management side or they don't think about the billing side. That's not as exciting. And I don't know what it is with designers where they, they think, you know, man, if I could only work on another music app or another chat app, that would be cool. But let me tell you something. I like I have a strong belief in the next, you know, five or ten years that those things that have currently been pretty boring, like user management, like content management, like uh, conversation management for forums or you know conversational situations, is going to be a hell of a lot more important than people give it prominence for. So for those designers listening, just give a little bit of thought about how you're going to handle those types of tools when they come up, those types of whether they're developer tools or whether they're moderator tools, but the tools that consumers don't see, but the people behind the scenes see. Yeah, we have to keep in mind that all of the front-end UI is slowly congealing into something that people understand and something that works. We're, we're finding patterns that are best in class, that people understand, that work well, and the really crazy UI innovation is is slowing down because there's there's just examples that you can follow so if you want to differentiate yourself start understanding the more complex mechanisms that we haven't really solved yet and and moderation is definitely a big one of them and by the way with with doing those tools you're probably going to have an active conversation within the company around what do we believe in what do we stand for again frankly on my side i think it's i think it's quite bs that if i want to go uh, let's say, um, okay, so I believe Mein Kampf was recently um, removed from the banned list in Germany, but you can only get it annotated, if I remember this correct. So they still don't allow you to get the actual book. And I get, I get, you know, I, I mean, I didn't grow up in Germany, right? I didn't, I don't have all the cultural understanding. I understood, I understand the history, I understand what happened, but I'll never quite have that that culture ingrained with me in the same way that you or, or the other people we work with won't have that American culture ingrained in you. Yeah. But at the same time, I find it difficult that I can't walk into a bookstore and purchase this book. I understand the concerns of it, but just my brain seems to be like, wait, I, I know this is bad, but I am interested to read the book like Mein Kampf and I, I own a copy and I'm interested to read it to understand how these events took place and what led to this. It's not, you know, I don't want to buy it to believe in it. I want to buy it to understand. And so, the, you know, when somebody tells me you can't do that and we are actively censoring knowledge from you, I feel, well, aren't we just dooming ourselves to repeat things? And, and that's a very niche example. I totally understand that. And there are examples that are very good ones of where content should be censored. For example, you know, you don't want your kids watching pornography or, you know, violent beheadings or things like this that are really not suitable for, uh, for minors or in some case people of any age. Yeah. Um, so I do get some of that, you know, and maybe this goes into a model where, for example, TVs sell packages that are basic that have, you know, no offensive content on them. And then they sell the basic package with the sort of extra premium channels. And some of those may have your like, 
uh, you know, nudity or whatever on it. And, and that's sort of like a combination of business model plus regulatory government regulation around what you can see. And so there, I, maybe there are things like that. Yeah. I, I tend to think that gets into a really weird net neutrality space. But we talked about something this morning that was really, really interesting, which was up until, uh, let's say, 10, 15, 20 years ago, uh, let's, let's go for 20 years ago, when the internet was really sort of coming up back in the mid-90s, 2000s. Before that point, the way that you consumed media was newspapers, TV, radio, Yeah, right? For the most part. And that content was basically policed in a combination of company plus regulation. Mm -hmm. And that was based within the country. So you had the context of the culture. But along comes the internet and basically, you know, punches that system in the stomach and says, nope, now you can get content from everywhere in the world. And I think that's what you're you know, that, that's what's causing some of this distress now is that things that people may be fine within the U.S. are not fine in other places. I mean, take, for example, you know, I know Europe has a much more lax uh, attitude towards uh, nudity, uh, let's say topless nudity for women. Yeah. And whereas the U.S. would be like, oh, my God, like, you can't put that on TV. And all of a sudden I'm like, wait, uh, I don't know who's right or wrong in this situation. There's two cultures, but... Here's the internet and I can, you know, just go and get porn anytime I want. And oh my God, my head's going to explode. And so again, this goes back to, you know, the, the company, sorry, the company you're in, the culture you're in, the region that you're in. And again, if you think about how to build tools, you're probably going to have some of these really obtuse and weird conversations, but it may lead to something interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm also thinking of this kind of censorship really mimics the behavior of parental controls, right? Where parents are allowed to, for whatever channels they have that their kids use, like TV or internet, or, or I wanted to say radio, but I'm not that old, but where they can limit what their kids can can see and hear and listen to or or it's it's just a monitoring tool and actually i i have a nice design challenge there's there's a thing that was on um, television here yesterday under the dutch kids it is very hip right now there's a certain challenge i'm not sure what it's called but think of it as the ice bucket challenge or what's the one the cinnamon challenge you know where, where people try something that is obviously stupid, but they find it really cool to do. And then they challenge other people to try and do the same as they did. And what's hip under the kids right now is to record a video of yourself or you and your friends making yourself or your friends pass out, recording that and then tagging somebody else who has to do it. And a, a boy died recently doing this because he did it wrong. Parents don't know how to figure this out with their kids. So should they know that these kids are watching that and then have a conversation about that? Or should they make sure that these kids are blocked from this content? Are, are, are they doing the, are they making themselves pass out by basically breathing heavily and then pressing on their neck to cut off the blood to their head? Yep. Because I, I remember people doing that in my high school, like in, in uh, what, what we associate with ninth grade. So yep. you're around 13 or 14 years old, right? And <laughs> people did that. And so they're like, it's not new, right? That was 30 years ago for me or a little less. Yeah. But what's interesting, obviously, is the network effect of, you know, I knew about it because a friend told me, but now if I can see it online and I look really cool because I do it on, you know, th that is a perhaps a problematic situation. You know, you're killing some brain cells. But like you said, if you, 
you know, maybe do it too long or do it incorrectly, it is cutting off blood to your head, which is not a positive thing. Exactly. Generally. But the, the network effect <laughs> here is what makes it scary because it can take a country or multiple countries by storm instead of slowly moving and people learning about this before it starts happening around them. So I, I think this is a, a cool challenge to think about, like in, in what way would you manage your content being YouTube, Snapchat, WhatsApp to figure out a way around this problem? <sighs> okay. I think we're good for, uh, I think we're good for today. I was just, I, I let out that big sigh. Cause I was like, you know, I, <laughs> I can see where you're coming from. And at the same time, I hate the idea of policing content, but like... Exactly. Yeah. Ah, you know, I mean, that's why that's why it's good conversations to have. Yes. Because there will, always, there will always be a reason why you should not allow some content at some point. But what is that and what do you stand for? And are you doing it to the detriment or the positive aspects of society? And even, you know, if you're thinking about the positive aspects, just think about the, you know, in the U.S. freedom of speech, I'm sure there's a similar thing here. But yeah, the idea that you are essentially stripping away people's ability to choose for themselves because you are deciding as a corporate or a regulatory body what people should do. Yeah, think about it and discuss it because it is happening. We see demonetizing of videos. We see removing from playlists. These things are happening right now. It's a big topic. What is offensive to some people and not offensive to others is also a big topic. It changes daily. Get in on this discussion and stop discussing if the button needs to be green or lime green. I love it, man. Yep. I'll talk to you next week. Bye, man. Bye. Right. Later, man.